1: Bring
0: in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. President Biden delivers a State of the Union with some political fireworks.
1: Some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. Former Democratic
0: Senator Heidi Heitkamp joins us. There was a little bit of pandering to the Democratic base. And former Republican Congressman Mick Mulvaney.
2: I thought you did see a moment there last night where everybody just sort of agreed and said, look, there's a lot of other stuff out there we need to look at before we look at Social Security
3: and Medicare.
0: And Andrew catches an Uber to Uber, the company's big quarter and big goals, with CEO Dara Shahi.
3: We've committed to go all EVs, not only in your city, but all of the U.S., Europe, Canada by 2030.
0: Plus... One big chatbot in the mix and markets digesting Fed Chair Jay Powell's bumpy warning. CNBC's Steve Leesman.
4: Is there a certain stability and dare I say the word serenity in accepting where the Fed is going and saying, OK, now let's get on with business?
0: It is Wednesday, February 8th, 2022. Squawk Pod begins right now.
4: Stand back, you by in three, two,
1: one. Cue please.
5: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. And if you want to take a look at what's been happening with
0: Mr.
6: Speaker, the President of the United States.
1: Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Some of my Republican friends want to take the economy hostage. I get it unless I agree to their economic plans. All of you at home should know what those plans are. Instead of making the wealthy pay their fair share, some Republicans, some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority of them. Let me give you, anybody who doubts it, contact my office. I'll give you a copy. I'll give you a copy of the proposal. That means Congress doesn't vote. Well, I'm glad to see you. And I tell you, I I enjoy conversion. You know, it means if if Congress doesn't keep the programs the way they are, they'd go away. Other Republicans say, I'm not saying it's a majority of you. I don't even think it's even a significant. But it's being proposed by individuals. I'm not politely not naming them, but it's being proposed by some of you.
7: Let's talk about uh, last night's State of the Union address. President Biden laying out his vision for moving the economic agenda forward. And he took the opportunity to call out record profits for oil companies and corporate buybacks.
1: Have you noticed Big Oil just reported its profits, record profits? Last year, they made $200 billion in the midst of a global energy crisis. I think it's outrageous. Why? Why? They invested too little of that profit to increase domestic production. And when I talk to a couple of them, they say, well, we're afraid you're going to shut down all the oil wells and all the uh, oil refineries anyway, so why should we invest in them? I said, we're going to need oil for at least another decade. And that's going to exceed <laughs> —— and beyond that. We're going to need it — production. If they had, in fact, invested in the production to keep gas prices down, instead — They use the record profits to buy back their own stock, rewarding their CEOs and shareholders. Corporations ought to do the right thing. That's why I propose we quadruple the tax on corporate stock buybacks and encourage long-term investments.
7: I want to bring in uh, Heidi Heitkamp, former U.S. Senator of North Dakota. She's now director of the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics, founder of One Country Project and a CNBC contributor. Also Mick Mulvaney, former OMB director and a former White House chief of staff. He's now co-chair of Actum Strategic Advisors. Thank you both for joining us, Heidi. um, You know, there were moments uh, where I thought he actually did a very good job connecting with the economic issues of the day on that score, though, around the issue of buybacks and particularly around oil profits. And he effectively gave you the argument for why the oil companies are not drilling and then said 10 years. Well, for most CEOs in oil land, who I think were listening to that, they were saying 10 years is like a nanosecond for them. Most investments are 10, 20, 30, 40 year investments. What did you make of that moment?
8: Well, I think it it. Fails to understand what the trajectory or what the time, uh, you know, uh, horizon is for return on investment for drilling and especially for refining. I mean, a 10-year return on investment. I mean, you'd have to raise prices pretty high to actually recover the amount you would be investing. And so, you know, he quickly turned from the 10 years and beyond that he said and beyond. I think 10 years is a horizon that is unrealistic practically. But I also think it's not enough to encourage people to make the investments. And so, um, you know, I think there was a little bit of pandering um, maybe to the uh to the Democratic base. But uh, at the end of the day, I'm glad he recognizes that one of the reasons why we've seen a lot of um, uh, resistance is this return on investment issue.
7: Mick, is the stock buyback, uh, the the quadrupling of it, uh, dead on arrival? Obviously, there there was uh, some uh, taxes on stock buybacks. It was just Put into place you also heard him talk about a billionaire's tax uh 15 billionaires tax a, a minimum tax for corporations as well uh something that was akin i think to uh what what president obama back in the day in 2011 i think talked about being the buffett rule is that is is this something you think we're actually going to see or do you think this is theater uh,
2: i i think it's theater it's the state of the union which is theater generally keep in mind one thing about the speech This is the one time when a president gets to talk to people who don't follow politics very well. So he's not going to go down into detail. It's going to be a very, very high level speech. So it is a lot of theater. And even to the extent, Andrew, that there might be some uh, appetite and there's not much, but there might be some appetite on the Republican side to maybe look at taxes as a way to narrow the deficit and lower the debt. Um, I don't think the Democrats are willing to give the type of spending cuts that they'd have to get in order to get a bipartisan deal. So, again, I think that's sort of a that's a candidate campaign thing. I think you saw a really good first speech of the 2024 campaign from Joe Biden last night. But I don't think those proposals um, have really much legs in Washington, D.C.
7: Talking about cutting spending, uh, there was another moment. I don't know if we have video of it. Uh, it was really a, I mean, you can tell me whether you think he renegotiated the debt ceiling in real time in front of the public, uh, where he effectively said that we we're all in agreement, meaning everybody in that chamber uh, around not cutting uh, back on uh, social security and medicare Mick
2: Yeah I did see that moment and I think that that was in Entirely fine. I think a lot of the Republicans had said they wouldn't touch Social Security or Medicare. Donald Trump said the same thing. The budget that I wrote in 2018 was a massive reduction in mandatory spending, but didn't touch Social Security or Medicare. We spend over $4 trillion on entitlements every single year. Social Security, Medicare, you know, just more than half of that. So there's still a lot of other entitlement spending you can look at, mandatory spending you can reduce without touching Social Security and Medicare. So I, I thought you did see a moment there last night where everybody just sort of agreed. said, look, there's a lot of other stuff out there we need to look at before we look at Social Security and Medicare. If you can't cut port deepening, which is an entitlement, a mandatory program, I'm not making that up. You're never going to get a chance to look, you know, really at Social Security and Medicare. So I I think it was a good moment. uh, And I think it helps sort of drive the discussion that there will be some negotiation on spending, but it won't touch on those major, major programs.
7: Mick, were you struck? I thought there was sort of these these America first like elements almost to parts of the speech, especially when he got into the buy American uh, stuff and some of the infrastructure. I mean,
1: Tonight, I'm announcing new standards require all construction materials used in federal infrastructure projects to be made in America. <laughs> made in America. Lumber, glass, drywall, fiber optic cable. And on my watch, American roads, bridges, and American highways are going to be made with American products
7: as well. There were sort of pieces of it that I thought were uniquely bipartisan perhaps
2: yeah and some of that sounded as much like as Trump, as Biden. I picked up on the same thing you just mentioned, which is during that Buy America, you're going to make it here, build it here. Uh, We're going to use materials from here, et cetera. You could have taken that right out of any State of the Union speech that Donald Trump gave. And it just goes to show you where the center of gravity is in, in Washington, D.C. right now. And 20 years ago, no Republican would stand up for that made in America stuff because we know it costs more money. It's less efficient to do it that way. But Donald Trump sort of changed our party on that. So, yeah, there were a lot of things that were. That could be bipartisan. That the China thing, uh, I still come back to uh, the, the 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 attitude towards China is one of the few bipartisan things uh, in the country that there that, they're ha- that we have right now. So yeah, there's a basis for some discussion. I just don't populism think you can see pop, that's like why tax called,
6: That's why it's called populism, because it's popular. So yeah, even the oil st- bashing is kind of popular. You know. not and
2: that's all, uh, to that's a all certain popular. extent, you know it is, but people still have to buy gasoline, so that's no, where that popular. That,
6: that was I, that was pretty funny. I, I hadn't seen that. That was uh, that got a good uh, that got a good laugh. By almost sounded like a bipartisan laugh. That's nice. Uh, Heidi, I, I was going to just
7: <laughs> refer back though to to some of the the Buy America stuff and and going to the point that Mick was making about politics and how so many people who who do watch the State of the Union may not follow politics and may not follow economics even necessarily understand for example that buy America sounds fabulous in certain ways but on the other side of it there there are real costs associated with it and, and I wonder whether there's a disconnect with the American public or not
8: well let me let me kind of calibrate this um, Tammy Baldwin has been the champion of buy America amendments on almost every appropriation bill. And they've been voted down by Republicans. And so that even though there may be clapping and there may be a, a nod to the Trump policies, there still is, I think, a deep seated concern about uh, Buy America, but I think, Andrew, your point about how is Buy America different from America first? And it was interesting because Trump, or, uh, Biden last night was also speaking to our trading partners when he said, we can do all of this and not violate WTO rules or, or trade rules. We know that we're confronting on the Inflation Reduction Act spending and the Buy America provisions there. We're confronting a, a hostile attitude towards that in Europe. And so, this is much more complicated than just standing up and giving a speech about buy America.
7: Do you think there's a chance the Inflation Reduction Act gets um, repealed,
8: Heidi? No, no. I mean, I think I think number one, it was incredibly popular, even in my state. Um, we have a governor who is out uh, spending that money as we speak, talking about how we're going to transition our fossil fuel economy to a cleaner economy. I think that this was politics when people voted against the Inflation Reduction Act, and I don't think it's likely it's going to get repealed. Oh, do and you even think- (laughs) Do you think there's a chance
5: that it is overhauled to soften some of the Buy American? Because, as you mentioned, that has really infuriated some of our European uh, allies. I I think it's hard to say. I think that's got
8: to play out. But right now, as you saw last night in this speech, the Buy America or the inflation reduction provisions are what Biden intends to run on 2024 on. And I don't think he's going to let anyone disrupt that. And as we know, trade disputes take a long time to resolve. So it almost is a badge of honor if Europe says you are you're overprotecting America in, uh, and injuring European economy.
7: So, Heidi, uh, put your professor hat on. I'll do this with Mick as well as I, uh, as we, we, we have to end this uh, conversation, unfortunately. Uh, grade, grade this re-election. Uh, this, is, is it a re-election speech? Is that what we're, we're describing it as?
8: Oh, I completely agree with Mick. This is this was kind of a, a soft opening of the 2024 campaign, and I think he laid it out. Um, I think he really enjoyed the back and forth with the Republicans because it set a, a, the ground rules for what this campaign is going to be all about.
7: Professor Heitkamp, we need a grade, a letter grade.
8: Oh, a letter grade. A <laughs> I letter give, grade. I give, I give You're a professor grade. now, right? You don't do that
7: anymore, Andrew.
8: (laughs) Good point. Oh, come on, (laughs) Joe. there's still academic excellence, particularly that was at Mick. our
6: institution. That was, that was Mick. So what's your letter grade? I, I agree, though. It was, it, it, yeah, graded on the curve, Heidi. Like at Harvard, that was an A. <laughs> I,
8: no, I would give it an a B plus. I would give Joe a B-plus last night.
2: Mick Mulvaney, Professor Mulvaney, what's your what's uh, your letter I, grade? And I love the fact she thought that I was Joe Kernan. Thank you very much, Heidi. I appreciate that. Um, B-plus, A-minus as, as a campaign speaker was really good. It was high energy. He was alert. He was engaging. Yeah. As a political speech really good speech last night as a get something done in washington c minus but that's not the purpose of the speech
7: professor heidkamp professor marvaney we appreciate you being with us thanks i played golf with
6: trump i wasn't his chief of staff mech you got you can live with that
3: cheese will be next
0: Coming up, Andrew calls a ride share and heads out of the NASDAQ market site.
7: I'm at Uber's headquarters physically right now. We've got a first on see interview coming up with the company's CEO, Derek Hauser-Shahi, and we're gonna do it right after the break.
3: We're seeing strength across the board. During the pandemic, you saw a huge shift of spent to retail. And now coming out of the pandemic, you're seeing shift come out of retail into services.
0: SquawkPod will be right back This is Squawk Pod.
7: Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross-Dorkin along with Becky Quick and Joe Kernan. I'm down at Uber's headquarters. They just reported earnings and we have the company CEO on in just a little bit. Earnings out uh, from Uber. That's where we are right now. Ridesharing company beating on the top and bottom lines. Earnings coming in at 29 cents a share. Analysts were expecting a loss, though, we should say of 18 cents. So it is a beat and you're looking at that stock moving already on that news Close to 7% higher in the pre-market. Revenue better than expected as well at $8.6 uh, billion. Company saying it expects to grow year-over-year gross bookings uh, 20 to 24% in 2023. We're going to hear a lot about all of this, uh, those results, the state of the business, and so much more. Joining us to talk about it first on CNBC is Uber CEO, Darik Osiraj. shocking it's great to see you, sir. Great to be here. Uh, and, and I'm sure great to see you on a day when you have some pretty great news to report. Let's sort of break down what you're seeing. And then I want to sort of break down what's happening to the extent that you, you are seeing a larger economy. And we've been talking about the so-to address last night and also what Fed Chair Jay Powell was saying about inflation. The mobility number was, 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 I think, a lot higher than people were expecting. And then similarly on the food side,
3: how do you see that breakdown right now? Well, we're seeing strength across the board. I think what's happening with Uber is that during the pandemic, you saw a huge shift of spent to retail. And now coming out of the pandemic, you're seeing shift come out of retail into services. And by the way, that shift is not over. We're not back to pre-pandemic levels in terms of spend on services. So what that translates into for us is record audience, 131 million monthly actives on the platform, up 11% year-on-year, record trips, 2.1 billion trips this quarter. That's almost a million Uber trips or deliveries every single hour, Uh, and that was up 19%, and also record gross bookings, $30.7 billion. Are you (laughs) seeing
7: anything about the strength of the consumer, though? Because there's been lots of questions about how strong the consumer is, whether they'll trade down. You're seeing folks trade down, if you will, in other parts of the economy. Are they doing it
3: in, in Uber land? We have looked and looked, Andrew, because we want to think about not where the business is today, but where is it going to be six months from now? Where is it going to be a year or three years from now? And we're not seeing any signs of consumer weakness at this point. Now, we may be benefiting from the shift of retail spend to services spend, but we've looked at different consumer demos based on where they live, et cetera. We've looked at uh, Eats orders are more uh, eaters going to two-star or one-star restaurants. And we're seeing no signs at all of consumer spend weakness. Now, when we talk to our earners, about 70% of drivers who are signing on, and the number of drivers signing on is up 34% year, on you very healthy. They're saying that inflation is a factor in their decision to come onto our platform so that they can earn more. So we may be benefiting from that trend. Uh, we'll see where it takes us, but right now everything looks green. Um, one, of the, one of the items that looks great, at least at the moment, uh,
7: is some of your investments, which were actually written up, uh, I'm thinking of DD and Grab. Long term or even short term, what is your sense of when you might exit those investments and what that exit might look like?
3: Well, DD is a great company, and we—it's a significant stake for us. But we plan to exit that stake o- over time. Now, the good news for us is we're strongly free cash flow positive for the year, and we, we will be free cash flow positive for the foreseeable future. So we can take our time. Uh, and sell down our DD stake when the time is right. So that's when, not going to be. There's not going to be some morning
7: that we're going to wake up and you're out of the stake. You think it's something where you sell in tranches?
3: We haven't determined how we're going to sell or when we're going to sell, etc. But we can take our time and maximize value for our shareholders. But we're not looking to be an investment manager right. one way or the other.
7: What is? I mean, by the way, you've played the role of CFO at other companies. Sure. What is your take more broadly, though, on China? And, and whether, you know, what that looks like in terms of
3: D.D.? Well, I think that it looks like China is getting to a more stable place in terms of the reopening. Uh, hopefully it will connect itself appropriately with the rest of the world as far as the economy goes. Uh, and we think our D.D. state can be significant value that we can realize over right. a period of time.
7: Um, you talked about being free cash flow positive, operationally positive. You say it's something that's going to happen this year. Yes, yes. Is that a Q3 uh, Situation. Sometime force. this
3: year, sometime this year, you know, the the year before last, we talked about being EBITDA positive. We hit EBITDA positive ahead of street expectations. Last year, we said we'd be free cash flow positive. We got to free cash flow positive ahead of street expectations. This year, we're putting the marker. We are going to be gap operating profit positive positive. Uh, and, you know, we'll hit it in due course. Right. We're not talking. We don't want to focus on quarters. We want right. to focus on many years.
7: Um, Back to the issue just of inflation, I'm curious what you're seeing on the food side of the business and where you think that ends the year, given the conversation we've been having on our broadcast a lot about what Jay Powell has been talking about and just cost of eggs, for example.
3: Yeah. In general, if you think about pandemic winners and food for us was a real pandemic winner. Right. right? It was up 300 percent on a year on year basis. The food delivery business has been actually remarkably resilient. Our growth was 14% year-over-year on a constant currency basis. Actually accelerated from last quarter. And really the drive there is to continue to add selection, continue to add more restaurants, and then add grocery as well. About over 10% of our eaters now are trying grocery on eats, which is terrific. We are seeing menu inflation uh, in our eats business, and we've seen a little bit of the number of orders in a basket come down. So maybe people are ordering a little bit less in response to menu inflation, but it looks like that menu inflation is subsiding. In other words, it's not getting any worse. It's not getting any better. All right.
7: Talking about food, we're here at your office. Um, lots of uh, tech companies, as you know, have been cutting back. Yes. They've been cutting back on, on, frankly, stuff like that. That's that's behind me right now. What is your plan? And what do you think of? You know, Brad Gerstner's come out and said, you know, Uber should be more efficient. They look at the the Twitter model. There's a lot of folks looking at what Elon Musk is doing there and saying, you know, should we be doing that too? What do you think?
3: Well, efficiency for us is not uh, an initiative that you embark on all of a sudden when you have to. Efficiency is how you run the business every single day. And so if you look at uh, Uber, since 2019 to today, our total headcount over those three years is up 10% for the core business, not including freight which came with an acquisition. 10% over three years. Our gross bookings over the same period were up 60%. So for us, efficiency is something that we think about every single day. Part of that for us is getting employees back into the office, getting them collaborating, working together. But we have been very, very tight on costs throughout our operations, and we will continue to be very tight on costs going forward.
7: Uh, one cost that I imagine may be a challenge, but maybe not. Um, I'm a New Yorker. I use uh, Uber here in New York. Thank you. Uh, the mayor and the city have said that uh, all of these vehicles need to be EVs by 2030. What's that really going to cost?
3: Well, we couldn't agree more. We have uh, said we've committed to go all EVs, not only in New York City, but all of the U.S., Europe, Canada by 2030. Uh, and we are making that change already. now. The environment is a team sport. We need partners. So, for example, we partnered with Hertz, right. uh, who is buying 50,000 Teslas, putting it on our fleet. So, more and more, you're going to see more electric vehicles on Uber. In California, over 10% of our miles now are on EVs. Uh, I have a Tesla Y, but and I, really I drive.
7: Like the 23rd, I mean, we were talking about yeah. uh, President Biden's comment. I don't know if you watched uh, the uh, SOSU last night, and he said oil is only gonna be around for 10 more years. And I think there was a lot of laughing in that chamber.
3: Well, I think it's gonna be uh, there for many, many more years. But I think for Uber, our average driver drives four to five times the miles than any other driver in the U.S. So it's very important for us to take a lead. If you get an Uber driver onto an EV, it's the same as getting four or five other drivers onto an EV. So we are committed right. to 2030. what's all that wheels.
7: cost and how that look? Uh,
3: well, what, We've invested now, we've committed to invest $800 million to help our drivers make right. the switch over to EVs. So, for example, we'll reduce our take rate on EVs. We will give subsidies uh, to make it right. more affordable for you to recharge, et cetera. But our investment is $800 right. million. Do
4: you think
7: people are more inclined to actually get in a car that's an EV? As a, as a customer, you know, there's a, yeah. there's a service that competes with you here in New York, uh, New York City. They drive around. Yeah, the cars. there's a ton of competition. No, that, in, in, but that are just EVs. Yes. And that's the whole sort of model. But I don't know how successful that model is or not.
3: Now, remember, you can choose Uber Green or right. Uber Green Comfort yep. uh, right here as well. And what we've seen is customers are willing to pay with their time. Right. Most customers aren't willing to pay a premium for an EV. But They'll instead wait. of a four-minute ETA, they will wait for a seven-minute ETA. So they will take more time to help the environment. And we think that's great.
7: Um, one of the things we have been talking about incessantly over the last several weeks, and I imagine when you were in Davos, it was a topic topic du jour, uh, chat GPT. Yes. Curious how you think about that type of technology in the context of Uber, and especially as you think about creating a sort of super app of sorts, what kinds of questions or conversations um, you know users like myself may be having with that app in the future?
3: So we think that the applications with Uber are going to be much more, Uh, of our voice being conversational with you. So for example, a description of a restaurant can be built dynamically based on menu, et cetera, and can be personalized based on your interests, if we know that you like Thai food, for example, or someone else's interests, We think that our voice in terms of customer service when something goes wrong can be, again, much more human and personalized as well. So generative AI does have some applications for us, for us, more importantly, AI, we're using large models of AI now to price and route and match. And one of the technologies that you've seen is, for example, upfront pricing right. and upfront destinations that we offer to drivers. That's the power of AI. That's
7: part of the tech stack becomes commodified. And the reason, the reason I ask is you look right now, everyone looks at uh, chat GPP. Here's a company all of a sudden worth $30 billion out of nowhere. Uh, how much is this company supposed to be worth? How much? Is this something where you, where you actually ascribe massive values to those type of companies? Or, are, or is this just a sort of component part that everybody's going to have of some sort?
3: I think the models themselves can be commodified, but the data sets can't. So if you look for us, we have by far the largest data sets of people moving, right. demand for movement and supply for movement, whether that's driving people, things, trucks, et cetera, than anyone else in the world. And I think that will allow us to use the power of AI to match in price in a way that nobody else can.
7: Uh, we got to run, you've got a, uh, another big
3: Super Bowl ad.
7: You've, you've yes, always, we do.
3: You guys lean into the Super Bowl, you got Diddy this year. It's a, it's a big event uh, and this one is, uh, is, is a you is event. You can't get the great, jingle great, great. out of your head. Yeah, absolutely, it's how amazing. Much, how, how much do you pay for that? Uh, I'm going to keep that to myself, but, but uh, we're going to get our money's worth and then some, uh, and the Diddy ad is just incredible.
7: Dara, thank you. Nice to see you, sir. Thank you. Appreciate it.
0: Next on Squawk Pod, the rest of today's stories that got us squawking. Microsoft's Bing bet on an AI chatbot.
6: Write a Andrew Ross Sorkin, Joe Kernan debate.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and our own human analysis of Fed Chair Jay Powell from Steve And
4: I'd hate to see the Fed squash the economy in search of trying to get inflation down when maybe it was a huge supply side issue. Right.
0: All that and a little surprise.
7: I had an Apple IIgs with his signature on it as a child.
0: It's coming up right after this break. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash methane. You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Hop on, Becky. Thank Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box here
5: on CNBC. We are live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick along with Joe Kernan. Andrew is wake, making his way back here from his interview with Uber CEO Dara Khosrowshahi. I'm worried. We'll be here in a minute. Okay. Fed Chair Jay Powell telling investors that inflation is starting to ease. That's the good news. The bad news is, though, interest rates are still likely to rise. Steve Leisman joins us with more right now. And Steve, there was a little bit of something for everybody in those comments that he made yesterday.
4: Exactly, Becky. And, and I think the markets gave uh, the Fed chair a split decision. These were his first comments on that very strong January jobs report. And it suggests, he suggested if such strength continues, the Fed may have to raise rates higher than it had previously forecast. The reality is we're
6: going to react to the data. So if we continue to get,
7: for example, strong labor market uh, reports or higher, higher uh, inflation reports, it may well be the case that we have to do more and raise high more than it's priced in.
4: So markets gave Powell, like I said, a split decision. Stocks rallied after the speech with some saying Powell was not as hawkish as he could have been and that he continued to say inflation is easing, even if bringing it down is going to be a bumpy road. But the Fed funds futures market, it increased its outlook for the peak funds rate. The peak funders rate had been 489 for the June contract before the jobs number. The peak contract is now August, and it's trading with a yield of 514, exactly where the Fed is for year-end. Rubila Faruqi from HFE writing after the speech, At a minimum, we expect another two hikes, with the caveat that rates could move higher than currently expected. We do not anticipate an easing of monetary policy this year. As we've reported this week, the gap between where the Fed, where the market thinks the Fed is going and where the Fed says it's going, it's narrowed dramatically since that jobs number. An argument that had been about three-quarters of a percentage point, pretty substantial, is now just about a third of a percentage point. And there's got a whole year to work it out with the important question of whether the stock market now believes what the bond market is saying, Becky.
5: So, Steve, what's your takeaway on this? What, you sound like you have been coming down more and more on the side of the market than what the Fed's been saying. We, we talked to one investor earlier this morning who just made the very fair point that no matter how you cut this, no matter how much more they raise rates, we've already been through the biggest section of the hikes. So this year should be easier to digest than last year, no matter what.
4: Yeah, no, no doubt, no doubt. I guess the question is whether or not there's some breaking point here where it's, uh, too much for the market to to digest when it comes to the equity side. Um, I, I think the Fed is going to go to five. I mean, I think it's going to do another quarter and probably another quarter after that. That should bring it up to that area there. And it's going to sit there. And uh, unless inflation comes down sharply, I think they're going to stay there for quite a while. I think it was interesting, Becky, when, when I thought about, like, why did the market rise after it initially fell with Powell. You know the market has other things to think about. Uh, this AI thing is significant. Uh, you have a whole bunch of you know corporate restructurings going on and deals being made. I, I just wonder if the market has said, okay, now that we understand each other, me and the Fed here, so to speak, maybe now we can get on with their business. Is there a certain stability and dare I say the word serenity? And accepting where the Fed is going and saying, okay, now let's get on with business. We can the start to make now investment is, decisions. Uh,
6: everything relates to it. Exactly. A, to a Seinfeld. Uh, I have felt like the two of us have been sort of dancing around uh, a relationship in, in terms of agreeing on things lately. Steve. You know what I mean? It's not always like that. There are times in the past where I thought you were I don't know, I just thought you would you know, say that the Fed is doing its best and it's gonna be right and stuff. But lately I I think that you like me have been wondering is crushing demand the best way to run a country versus maybe increasing if you want to increase workers you don't raise interest rates if you want to help the job market you don't destroy the job market you just give more opportunity don't you? are you becoming a
4: supply sider a little bit steve or well, Joe, let's let us agree on, let, let's talk about a few things. We agree on a lot of things. We're both, we don't think the music of the Grateful Dead is fantastic. It, we it, both uh, believe in free markets. Eyes of the World, markets. your I favorite? Mean, eyes of the World or, or, it, uh, uh, or, or Unbroken Chain? I, I, I'm sort of, uh, you know, Unbroken Chain is now one of my favorite songs. It is. Uh, but it goes on and on. But 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 let's let's go from you know the Grateful Dead and free markets to a more important place, which is the outlook for the Fed, and and I think the Fed ought to be more cautious here. I, as I said a hundred times, I think there's this massive adjustment going on, Joe, in the job market, where there was some over from the pandemic. There was there's still under hiring. And there's this massive musical chairs thing going on, where we've got to get people in the right place. There's been a decline in the in, in the uh, uh, partic- in, in, in the participation rate, as well as a decline in the workforce. And there has to be adjustment. And I'd hate to see the Fed squash the economy in search of trying to get inflation down when maybe yeah. it was a huge supply side right. issue. And I've right. always been a supply side issue guy, guy Joe. I'm just a supply. And demand economic right. observer here.
6: If it was full, let's say it was eighty percent energy. It's just like so. That's the world we want, where we want a, a we want a, a, such a slow growth world right. that we don't use any energy. And that's that's our answer. Wouldn't it be better to to, to just produce more energy and then let the economy run hot without inflation? That would be a better
4: way to do things. Get. Yeah, yeah. and get to 62%. I, I mean, look, Joe, we took we took we we took Russia offline, right? So that's that's an important part right. and we have to get that that back and 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 there are legitimate Did I think we really, Joe, though? we disagree about that, that. if you want That wanna, oil's coming out. It, it, that oil's finding its way into Refineries, but not not the gas, Joe. Not not yep. look. It's been it's been a major disruption, and you and I have we disagree, and I don't want to emphasize our disagreements on the importance of climate change, and we can have oh, that discussion some other time. I think right. they just rolled their eyes in the control room oh, when God. I brought that up. So Jack, please. We'll leave- Let's leave, that to the, let's leave that to the side and uh, emphasize yeah, we the do positive gotta che- here.
6: We've got to get rid of this bad weather. That, that's first and foremost. We've got to make sure we, we try to put an end to that uh, near term. Who's going to disagree with that? Nobody. Thank you, Steve.
5: Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella said search powered by artificial intelligence is the biggest thing to happen to his company in the nine years that he's been at the helm. Here's what he told John Fort yesterday on Power Lunch.
7: We start. In with already a business that is profitable. And here's the interesting thing. The most profitable large software business is Search. So I look at this and say, look, I just have to earn one user at a time, an incremental GM. I've never, ever felt this liberated in terms of opportunity in the days ahead.
5: At an event at its headquarters yesterday, Microsoft rolled out AI updates to the company's Bing search engine and edge browser. Those updates will allow Bing to answer users in a way that provides more detailed responses to queries. Separately, sources tell CNBC that Microsoft plans to release software to other large companies to help them create their own AI chatbots. Microsoft's Azure cloud would be the backbone of those new services.
6: Check out the shares of Alibaba. The company just announcing uh, it's developing its own AI chatbot and is currently in the employee testing uh, phase right now. And what did, what did I see? Someone's going to, is that going to, is AI going to save Bing, Sorkin? There's no way. Bing That's from Groundhog Day. I, but I was I got to tell you, I was on Bing yesterday. Uh, you, yeah? To, to play.
7: I was trying to check it out. I, you what know. What did you think? But what I did you think? Because
5: actually, I'm actually pretty curious. Bing. I thought it was- Needle-nosed Ned. I thought it was pretty yeah. good. I think the truth
7: is that all this sort of ChatGPT-like products, the question is, does it become commodified? And does everybody have some version of it? But I imagine that you're going to have AI, some kind of AI, where you talk to it in all of these apps. And then the question is, therefore, what's the value of it in
6: terms of... I don't all, think all, it, the it can techniques. replace we'll us. I, I don't. So could you put in... You never saw Max Write a no, no, no. Andrew Ross Sorkin, and Joe Kernan debate. <laughs>
5: Actually I'm um, gonna try that right now. You know right what? Now.
6: I'll do that during the commercial break yeah. and I'll, I'll we'll come back and maybe we'll do a reenactment. I don't trust we'll technology. They'll make me happened. look bad. They'll make me high, big tech will make the conservative guy look bad. I'm gonna they, check will. This out. they will the logarithm is trash the conservative guy. I know it. So I'm not don't do that. I don't wanna read it. Try it, it right now.
0: now. And that's Squawk Pod for today. Don't miss our podcast tomorrow. Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak.
7: Hang on, uh, because, you know, a legend just walked into the studio.
0: He stormed our set today, and he started to share his take on ChatGPT.
3: I was very negative at first on any any human-made technology being equivalent to nature.
0: The Woz, tomorrow on this podcast. Make sure you follow SquawkPod wherever you're listening now so you don't miss it. And you can catch Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin right here, of course, and also weekday mornings on CNBC. Thanks for listening. We'll meet you back here tomorrow.
2: We are clear. Thanks, guys.